Hey, welcome to Love Shared Podcast from the River Church in Redlands. David Carnes here with the latest in the Dialogue series, our monthly discussion where we sit down with some great guests and dive into conversations at the intersection of faith and society. Today's show is Dialogue 3, Disabled Christianity, and we're blessed to have a terrific guest, Dr. Jeff McNair of Cal Baptist University. Check out our show notes for links to Dr. McNair's blog and for more information about his work and his ministry. Our host, as always, is Nick Intout, and I'll let him take it from here. So um, about a month ago, I had the opportunity to sit down with Jeff McNair, Dr. Jeff McNair. Um, I got your name from a friend of mine, John Portinga, um, and he said that his daughter, Maria, had been a part of a ministry that you uh, lead, and she had been there uh, a few times. And uh, he thought you would be a, a really interesting guy to, to learn from and learn with. And I, after that lunch, came back really, really jazzed. Um, I've been looking forward to this ever since then. And I've actually been kind of repackaging some of your stories and sharing them as my own personal wisdom with people. Um, so I hope that uh, everyone who hears this is uh, as blessed as I was after our first encounter. So um, Dr. Jeff McNair, uh, you are the... Um, a professor at California Baptist, the head of the special education uh, teacher training. Is that how you say that? What do, what do you well, call I'm, it? I'm the head of the moderate to severe. In California, there's mild to moderate for children who are mild disabilities and moderate to severe. So I'm the head of the moderate to severe teacher training program there. At CBU. And how long have you been at California Baptist? Uh, just finishing up my 12th year. Okay. And before that, you were at Cal State? Uh, Cal State, State San Bernardino, doing the same thing, moderate to severe disability teacher training program. So. Great. You're also, um, you have a blog that we encouraged our congregation to check out called Disabled Christianity. Um, I read a number of the articles and uh, I really, really love it. I love your, your perspective um, and I'm excited to kind of get at that in a little bit. But tell us a little bit about, um, you're a part of another organization called Joni and Friends. Um, would you tell us a little bit about what that is and um, how long you've been a part of that and, and what your goal is in Joni and Friends? Uh, I also want to do an advertisement before I move to Johnny and yeah. Friends, and <laughs> that is that we also have a master's program in disability studies at uh, Cal Baptist. It's entirely online, um, and it may be one of the few master's degrees in the world where you can uh, kind of specialize in disability ministry. So there's that as well that we do at Cal Baptist. But the Johnny and Friends organization, um, Johnny Erickson Tata, very famous gal, as a teen, uh, was in a diving accident, became a quadriplegic when she, when she dove into Chesapeake Bay and hit her head on the bottom. And uh, fast forward uh, 35 years, um, she uh, directs a ministry called Johnny and Friends, which is arguably the premier Christian disability ministry in the world. It's, has a variety of different things that they do. They just um, handed out their 100,000th wheelchair. And it's not just giving out wheelchairs, but it's going places, physical therapists, customize, measure, whatever, to put a person in a wheelchair. Occupational therapists go and design the thing. So they do that, they do family retreats. And then the part of Johnny and Friends that I'm involved with is called the Christian Institute on Disability. And it's kind of more the academic end of that, where we have a journal, we develop training materials, one of the training materials that I'd recommend people pick up if they're interested in is a curriculum called Beyond Suffering. Beyond Suffering. The cheapest way to get it is to um, buy the iPad version uh, online, but it has videos and uh, 
kind of audio presentations plus articles, uh, and it's a really good primer uh, for anybody who's interested in kind of just getting their feet wet in disability ministry. And you can actually even take it as a college class online through uh, Indiana Wesleyan University, I think, as well. So, well, I'm sorry, I, call, I don't know why I called it Joni and Friends. Whatever. It's not like an accent. I don't have an accent, really. You know what I mean? <laughs> you do, you, where are you from originally? I'm originally from New Jersey, just the Philadelphia area. Um, I went to school at Wheaton College back in the Midwest and then did my master's at Cal State LA um, and then went back to Illinois, a University of Illinois, who uh, we just got Lovey Smith, so maybe our football team has potential now. Um, went to University of Illinois, got my doctorate, and then came back out here uh, for the job at Cal State San Bernardino. So how did you like get, like what was the impetus for you in getting engaged and involved in disability uh, ministry? Was it first the educational piece? Um, what was the thing that kind of led you to where you are as a champion uh, for um, folks walking with disabilities? Well, as a freshman undergrad, my older brother uh, had been volunteering in kind of like a Friday night recreation group for adults with various disabilities, and he invited me down. So and when I started my freshman year, he invited me down, and that's where I met the first person I ever met with autism or a seizure disorder or intellectual disabilities or cerebral palsy because there's no one in my family who has had any kind of a disability and just kind of fell in love with the honesty of the people. Uh, like I say, I mean, if I like you, I say I like you. If I don't like you, I say I don't like you. You know, there's no barriers, there's no pretense. Um, and so I, I, I loved that and kind of and was really interested in that. And at the time I was doing my undergraduate degree in Christian education and I thought I'll go into full-time ministry for people with disabilities. Um, but there was no full-time ministry for people with disabilities in the 1970s, and if you did want to do that, the only place you could do it would be in one of the state institutions. Were just uh, were very, very difficult, terrible places, uh, as history says. Um, so I decided to do the special ed route, and so then um, that's kind of did my teaching credentials and doctorate in special ed. And but one of the critical aspects of particularly people with more severe types of disabilities is how do you facilitate integration for those people into the community. Um, they're devalued in a whole variety of ways, but one of the things that they lack is people don't want to be their friends. People don't want to hang with them. So the question is, how do we facilitate integration for those people into the community? And it's kind of like the Lord opened my eyes and it like dovetailed together that, you know, you have people who are desperate need of uh, friendships and community relationships, and then you have the Christian church, and there's a tremendous potential for them to come together and be the answer uh, for community integration for individuals with disabilities. Now, I'll say when you would, if you were to read my blog, you'll see that I'm, I'm quite critical about a variety of things that the church is doing <laughs> or is not doing. But at the same time, I unequivocally say, and I would say this to a secular group as well, the church is the answer for individuals with disabilities in the community in terms of integration and social uh, opportunities and uh, you know, even job opportunities, independent living opportunities, because all those things happen through networks. And so one of the other things that people with individu individuals with disabilities lack are social networks. And so, you know, you end up relying on state agencies and that for everything that you want, where none of us rely on state agencies. We do everything through networks and friendships and such. So another whole aspect of, of the church from a secular perspective is yeah, I mean, I want to teach people about the Lord and the things of the Lord, help them to grow in their faith, but I also recognize from a societal kind of sociological perspective, 
plugging people into that kind of a community environment also op opens up a whole variety of other opportunities for them, work, place to live, those kinds of things. You said when we were hanging out um, getting burritos, you said that uh, you'll have a lot of folks kind of uh, who the only people that hang around them are people who are paid to hang out with them. And, um, you know, so one of the, you just kind of mentioned as well, friendship um, is this really powerful thing. And you've got a number of friends. Uh, I can't wait to talk about a couple of them um, in a second. But will you just kind of um, maybe share with us, uh, people probably don't realize that a quarter mile down the road every Sunday, um, you know, you have a community called Light and Power uh, at Trinity Church. And say a little bit about what that is and, and um, how long that's been going and kind of what the vision is for that ministry. Yeah, the, it's called the Light and Power Company. It's a ministry that tries to include adults with uh, various disabilities. Um, we've been in existence since, uh, I don't know, it's like been 25 years now, I think, since we started it. Um, the, it's on a good Sunday, we'll have 75 or 80 folks, maybe a quarter of them are individuals without disabilities. But it's just a place where people can come and uh, you know, learn about the scriptures, be involved in social relationships with people, like you said, who are not paid to be with them, which is a thing that my wife and I, my wife Kathy, we do that together, um, are really interested in in terms of facilitating real relationships because you, as you indicated, imagine your life was filled with people only who were paid to be with you, that the only people who were in relationship with you either had no choice, uh, if you're a sibling or a parent, and that's not a put down of them, I'm just saying they have no choice, or you only have people in your life who are willing to be with you because they're paid to be with you. That would kind of be sad. So we tried to facilitate this ministry within Trinity. Now when we went down there, we were, Trinity was like most churches, where when Kathy and I said we were interested in starting this ministry, they said, you know, we're really not interested in that. And, but uh, fast forward now 25 years, if you would talk to people at Trinity, they would say, this is not me saying that, this is them saying it, that ministry that includes individuals with disabilities is part of the DNA of that church. Now, the thing I would say in this setting, I don't know what you guys are doing here at this church relative to ministry individuals with disabilities, but this is not something that churches should turn over to one particular church and say, you take care of it, because there are people who would choose not to go to my church and would prefer to go to your church. And so it's the kind of thing where every church should be involved with this. Uh, and it's the kind of thing that will change the way the church operates in every aspect of it, because people would be integrated at every level. So I want to, uh, one of the articles, I want to talk about one of the articles in your blog um, before we go into some of your friends who are just awesome. But uh, in one of the articles you spoke with, I don't know if it was a student of yours or somebody who, I think you had your students go to their churches and ask, hey, what does your church do for the disabled? And uh, I think it was a student who came back and said uh, that their pastor uh, said something like, you know, we're into organic, we're into seeing things happen organically, and um, the rest of your article is kind of you saying, that's a huge crock. Um, why can it not just kind of be like an organic process when you're talking about um, ministry with people that have disabilities? Why does that not work? Well, part of the reason it hasn't worked in the past, at least, and, you know, Lord willing, it won't be this way in the future. I mean, organic means people just kind of show up and ministries develop and that kind of thing. Well, the church has been very good at telling parents of kids with disabilities that we don't want you here. Mm 
that you know, a person, a family with a child with autism shows up and it's not like, awesome, we have a new kind of ministry that we can start, a people we can serve, it's more like, ah, oh, heck, now what are we gonna do? And that's communicated to people. So the one thing is that churches aren't really interested in organic development of ministry mm -hmm. in the area of disability and we go off into why that's the case. I think it's because they don't want to change. So how, did, how, did, how is that communicated to people? I mean, people don't come out and say. People come out and say, uh, I could tell you stories. These are true, real-life stories where there's one family in my church in particular who were living in um, Virginia, of all places. The couple grew up in the church, went through junior high and all that stuff together, got married ultimately in the church, uh, a child is born to them with very, very severe cerebral palsy. Now, you know, there's different types of disabilities people might be aware with. People with cerebral palsy, I mean, they're not behavioral issues typically. They're not problematic in terms of social skill kinds of things that would cause people to be uncomfortable. Um, and most people with cerebral palsy, for example, have typical intelligence. So they could be involved in the regular programs within the church. Well, when the child with cerebral palsy was born to this family, the pastor literally went to them and said, there's no longer a place for you here. And so this family was trying to figure out where could we go, where there would be a place for us. They searched, Googled, you know, disability ministry. Our church came up and they moved to California so wow. they could find a church that would say, we want you here. You know, it's, it's not that, oh, heck, we got to deal with you. No, we want you here. We want what you offer. So the organic nature of it, I mean, I wish it was more organic, but another aspect of the organic nature too is that, you know, um, <clears throat> if I want to have a ministry to people who are, um, whatever their characteristic might be, an ethnic group or something like that. Dutch. They, Dutch. Yeah. <laughs> are I'm, they a, I'm Dutch. Are they a priority so. for ministry? I'm <laughs> yeah. They are. They need help. They need help. All Big right. Time. Well, okay. I know. Um, but no, but let, let's just let's say, because you said Dutch, let's say I wanted to have a ministry to, to people who are of a Dutch descent. I mean, I could publicize that in some way and the people would come and, and so forth and hopefully I'd be able to facilitate that ministry. If you have people with intellectual and physical and other types of disabilities, they have no, they have no ability to get here. So if I just say, oh, we'd love everybody who come, that is a total cop-out because they have no ability to get here. So it can't be organic. It's not the, it's not the opportunity to be organic. And, and I don't see where that type of organic ministry notion is something that Jesus says. He doesn't, this is not the, remember the old Field of Dreams movie, you know, with the baseball players? Yeah, build, build it and they will come. This ain't no build it and they will come. This is go and make disciples. So we have to go where those people are and find them and bring them in. So what, for you, uh, you explained it in, in a really beautiful way earlier. Um, you were talking about 1 Corinthians uh, 12. And that is kind of the, the theological, biblical basis for a lot of the, the ministry that you do. Do that little sound bite. First Corinthians 12, the, the, the body and, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know I can really go off on this. Yeah. So you're just going to have to cut me off. Here. Yeah, no, I will. No, that's no, good. No, I mean, the, the body of Christ uh, is described by Paul metaphorically. Um, the church is the body of Christ. So the church is like a body. So as you go through that passage in First Corinthians 12, um, you get down to about verse 18, and, and um, Paul says, God has assembled the parts of the body, and then he says, every one of them. It's like he's accentuating it. He just doesn't say, oh, God assembled the parts of the body just like he wanted them to be. He goes, God assembles the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Mm. So that's one thing, first of all. If God is assembling the body just as he wanted them to be, and every part is 
is critical, that should cause me to look more differently at people that I might have dismissed. Okay, so I gotta stop right there. Every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Don't you think the majority of people in churches kind of look at people who are different and think something along the lines of there's some something that's missing there that, that they need and it, that's too bad. Not this person is a gift made in the image of God just as he wanted them to be. Absolutely. And that, that goes that goes straight to the way we have been fed by our leaders. Mm. Whether it's the leadership in the church or leadership in Christian colleges or seminaries or wherever, we have been fed that lie. Mm. And so as a result of that, we feel justified in excluding people uh, who have characteristics that we, with the we deem are not desirable. Mm. When in reality, I think this, the scriptures, as you dig into them, portray it as just the opposite. That the presence of individuals with disabilities will change the church, will perhaps be a corrective to the church to take it in a direction that it ought to be going in in the first place. Mm. But that First Corinthians, back to First Corinthians 12 again, that passage, if you go through it, it's just a corrective, one after another. You got this wrong, you got this wrong, you got this wrong, if you look at the way it's laid out. So the next thing after that, where it says the parts of the body, every one of them are just as, you know, uh, God created the body, every part of it just as he wanted it to be. That's the first thing it's correcting you. No, you got it wrong. Every part is of value. Then it says, you know, the, the, uh, the foot can't say, you know, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body. Well, I mean, the foot's just, feet are saying that all day long because we've been telling these people with disabilities, because you're not like me, you got mm -hmm. something wrong with you mm -hmm. that you're not a part of the body. So what is my response? I'm going to pray for healing so that you can be like me. Because mm -hmm. when you're like me, then, if you're a hand and not a foot, now you'll be acceptable. Ooh. So we have been communicating that to people. Why would the foot say because I'm not a hand? It's because it's been communicated to them. You are not acceptable. You are not the way you're supposed to be. Wow. And so people kind of have that negative feeling. And once again, it goes back to the notion of organic ministry again, where we tell people, we don't want you here. Mm. Go somewhere else. What are we saying? You are not what I want you to be. So go where somewhere else where maybe they'll take people who are like you, you know, like that have a foot ministry or something because we just have a hand ministry here. Mm. And then it goes on to say in the, in the uh, I can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Well, the eye's been saying to the hand all the time, we don't need you. By excluding people with disabilities, you know, there's something about you I don't like, I don't need you, right? Or the head can't say to the foot, I don't need you. And wow. we've been communicating that to people all the time, yeah. that we don't need you. Why? Because you show up with mental illness. So you show up with mental illness, man, you're a pain, we don't need you. You show up with autism, man, we don't want to deal with autism, we don't need you. And whatever else it might be that causes us to be inconvenienced in mm. the, the way that we no, worship a fictitious notion of who Jesus is, who would not want us to have people like that amongst us. And so we say that, like the hand says to the foot, or the head says to the hand, whatever it is, I says to the hand, I don't need you. Um, <laughs> then we go off and then it keeps going. It's, it's all this kind of stuff that he says, and then it. he gets down to verse 21 and he says, on the contrary, right, once again, a further correction. What, what you think is all wrong, on the contrary. He says, think of it, the parts of the body that seem weaker mm. are indispensable. The mm. first thing notice about that, he says, they seem weaker, right? He doesn't say they are weaker. Yeah. He says they seem weaker. Who do they seem to? It seems like they seem like it to Paul, because mm. he says they seem weaker. People with disabilities seem weaker to me, right? 
And so what do I do apparently with people who seem weaker? I dismiss them, right? Because you and I, we seem stronger. We got it all together, baby. You know what I'm saying? It's all good. She comes along, eh, you know, you seem weaker. No, you don't dismiss those people. He's saying, the people who seem weaker, they're indispensable. Meaning you can't live without those people. You cannot be the body without those people. Wow. And then he says the parts of the body that we think are less honorable. Right? We, once again, Paul's including himself. I think they're less honorable too, he's saying. We think those people are less honorable. What do we do with people that we think with who are less honorable? Do we treat them as if we're less honorable? Yeah, that's what we do. But Paul says the parts of the body we think are less honorable, to them we show special honor. Meaning, I have to change in order to honor you. You may not be able to kind of do social skills or whatever heck it else it is that we want you to do around here. So the thing I have to do, I think you're less honorable because your social skills are lousy. The thing I'm going to do is change what I'm expecting from you, be more open, uh, have a broader range of, quote, normal. And in that way, I'm showing you special honor so that you can be accepted. So I change rather than you having to change, because in one of the main reasons is you may not have the ability to change. Mm. Right? I can't go to a person with mental illness and say, you know, if you clean up that mental illness, then I'll accept you. There's, they, they can't. Yeah. So what's the only option? I have to show them special honor. Mm. How do I show them special honor? I change. And I overlook some of the things that I typically would find disturbing or bothersome or, or worthy of me saying there's no longer a place for you here. Yeah. You dropped a major bomb a few minutes ago. Um, you said uh, that so many of us are um, worshiping a fictitious Jesus mm -hmm. and um, kind of elevating this value of convenience. Say something about that or, or unpack that a little bit. What do you mean when you say we're worshiping a fictitious Jesus uh, and we're kind of elevating convenience to a place that um, I think I think I even had that in my notes from before. It's even uh, a barrier uh, for our growth as a community, the, the value of convenience. You know, I mean, what are the two commandments? Love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. Why would God command us to love our neighbor? You know, I don't have to command you to, you know, go home and, and, and grab a cold one and watch the ball game tonight because you'll just do it, right? What I would need to do would be to command you to take the garbage out because you don't want to, right? <laughs> so why does God command us to love our neighbor? Because loving our neighbor is hard, mm. right? Mm. And if loving your neighbor is easy, you need to find some more neighbors because you're not, you, don't, you, you need to find the people for whom it's hard to love. Those are the people that God wants into your life for a dozen reasons, not the least of which when I, when I butt up against someone who I don't have the ability to love in my own strength, I'm, I'm reduced to saying, I can't love this person, Lord. Would you help me to love this person? <laughs> and then he is honored in that, mm. right? I think I'm that person for my wife. Are you? <laughs> yeah, I think I'm that guy. You may be for a lot of people. I don't know. I don't know you that well, but, you know. <laughs> I might be. <laughs> yeah. But no, but that's this notion of this fictitious idea of who Jesus is in part. I mean, mm. if, you, if you just go through the scriptures and look at the kind of the comments about loving your neighbor and taking up your cross and all this stuff, it's kind of like, take up your cross. Oh, yeah, take up my cross. I got up a little early today to, to read the Bible, so I took up my cross this morning. You know, I'm doing... <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's way beyond that. It's loving people for whom it's, it's difficult to love those people, mm. right? And then that'll stretch you. And then once again, if I learn to love somebody with 
with, you know, whatever the fill-in-the-blank thing, difficulty that they have that, that makes it difficult to love them, now you're easy, mm. right? I love that. I, you said that, and it's been, I mean, a month ago or whenever we met, and I've been thinking about that ever since, um, you know, how when we do stretch our heart, uh, then suddenly, you know, uh, loving other people becomes just way easier. I think that's one of the gifts of, like, parenting, too, right? Mm -hmm. If you can love those little people when they scream at three in the morning, uh, there's a sense of like, hey, during the daytime when I got my faculties, whatever, it's going to be a little bit easier to love. So speaking of um, people who have stretched you, uh, you've got so many friends, um, people who have taught you a lot, and I love your perspective um, on relationships and friendship, um, and it's, again, just challenged me since our, our last lunch. Uh, will you tell a, a story or 10 about um, something that, that you've learned in relationship with uh, people who, who have disability? Yeah. Um, and maybe, maybe you can start by, uh, I forget what his name is, I wrote it somewhere, but the guy who you asked him if he thinks he has a disability. Because I just, that's, I love that story. I've been waiting it's, to hear that one again. I, I won't use their actual names because I hadn't asked their permission, but I have a dear friend, I'll call him Charlie. And um, Charlie, I'll, I'll sometimes take in my classes at the university because I, uh, there's a class that every teacher has to take, which is called Introduction to Special Ed. And that may be their only time that they touch special ed. And so um, as I teach that class, I've, I've kind of used it more as an attitudinal change rather than just a laying out a bunch of strategies. They get strategies for integration, but you know, if, if I don't care about you, then I'm not going to integrate you. So I want to kind of change their mindset. So I'll bring some friends down. And this one friend of mine, he's, he's probably one of my dearest friends in my life. I mean, I have lunch with him almost every Friday. And, um, but anyway, so Charlie, uh, I'll take Charlie to my class. And my class is sitting out here, and, and I'll say to Charlie, why are you here tonight? And, you know, I'm here to teach your class about people with disabilities. Okay, that's exactly right. And then we talk about different things. And and I ask very poignant, direct questions that people would be uh, uh, probably timid to ask because they're thinking that it wouldn't be appropriate. You know, I wouldn't walk up to you in the street and say, hey, do you have a disability? I mean, it just wouldn't be an appropriate question. But these guys that I bring, they know I'm going to ask those kind of questions. Um, and so, I mean, I'll give you one before I tell you, Charlie. I mean, this, this one woman, I, I, I said to her one time, um, I said, do you have a disability? And she said, uh, yes, I do. And I said, oh, really? What, what is your disability? And she said, I have Down syndrome. And, um, you know, we're terminating the lives of pregnancies all over the world of children who have Down syndrome, yeah. right? But so I'm asking her, so you have Down syndrome? She goes, yes, I do. I said, well, how has that affected you? She hesitates and she goes, sometimes my foot hurts. <laughs> you know, so Down syndrome to her is like irrelevant. You know, right. it's something that you're picking up. But, but anyway, so this same guy, Charlie, though, I'll, I'll, I'll ask him, I'll say, do you have a disability? And he goes, no, I don't think so. And then I immediately think, why am, I, why am I bringing him down here if he doesn't think he has a disability? Am I trying to convince him of that? He goes, I don't think so. And uh, he goes, you know, I, I uh, ride my bike to work and um, I have my own place. And someone comes and helps me, and I feel like I'm doing pretty good. I don't think I have a disability. And I said, do you know anybody who has a disability? And I know all the people he knows. I know He knows people who are blind, who use wheelchairs, people with intellectual disabilities, people with autism. I know all the people that he knows. And I said, do you know anybody who has a disability? And he goes, well, no, I don't think so. Oh, no. Yeah, that one guy, that guy Fred. 
he's got a disability. And I said, oh, really? What's Fred's disability? And he goes, you know, he swears a lot and he can't get along with other people. <laughs> and it's like, that's the end. And, but you'd get a bunch of pinheads like me, you know, a bunch of professors all together in a room and ask them what disability is. And we'd give you all these numbers and all these things. But my friend with intellectual disabilities truly understands that a disability is this, you swear a lot, you can't get along with other people. You know? <laughs> I love that. That's fantastic. I'll tell you one other story too, just that goes to the notion of service as well. I mean, clearly, if you're if you're interacting with individuals with um, disabilities, oftentimes they need some types of support and service. And so, thinking about how that can change you as well as in, in terms of changing your number, your um, uh, well, I forgot what I was saying. But anyway, so I have this other friend who um, passed away recently, dear dear friend of mine, and he was a man who. Um, had a very severe physical disability, and as aspect of his disability, he didn't know when he had to use the restroom. He would just take himself to the restroom, um, you know, at a particular time of day, and um, take care of business. And but he really didn't, because of his his disability, he didn't know when he had to use the restroom. And one day, I was sitting by him in church, and he leans over to me and he says, "I think I need to use the restroom." And I said, "Okay." And so I took him into the restroom, and by the time he got to the restroom, he had soiled himself. Um, you know, and he didn't have any spare clothes or whatever, and I didn't have anything particular gloves or anything to clean him up with. And so, you know, think about taking your friend to the restroom who soiled himself and helping him clean himself up. I mean, it was paper towels and everything everywhere and trying to do our best and trying to salvage any of his clothes that we could. And, you know, when, it, when it's done with this, um, got them all cleaned up. I'm thinking now... Taking my friend to church means that I may have to clean him up when he soiled himself. Church, church for me has just changed. <laughs> now, it never, it never happened again. I mean, it, he never had that um, accident again, but that changed. And I can remember in my, <laughs> I'm, I mean, I, I, I talk a good game, but uh, I, I'm like anybody else in terms of the things that I screw up. And I, I remember saying something to him like, you know, boy, that was kind of difficult, you know, after I'd cleaned him up. And he said to me, how do you think I felt? Right? Think about that. How do you think I felt? So you go out with a friend, you're at church or somewhere with your friend, you know, and you soil yourself and you have no ability to clean yourself up. How would you feel? Right? So once again, the things that you learn when you kind of allow yourself to be in the lives of those of, of people who struggle with those kinds of things. One, you learn how they feel and now it's hard for them. But you also recognize that, you know, what is worship for me? Is worship for me to go into a place and sit quietly and have no demands made on me to do anything for anybody? Or is worship for me going out of my way to pick somebody up who may soil themselves in the midst of the service, but I do that in order to facilitate their participation in worship? And you think, in, what, in which of these situations is God honored? The one where you put yourself out a little bit and particularly... Uh, have to have some demands made on you in order to facilitate, you know, bringing someone to church? Or is it the thing where it's totally easy and you go in and out and literally don't give a damn about anybody else in terms of picking them up or supporting them? Someone makes a little noise and you're like, you know, cut that crap out, you know, instead of wondering what might be happening with that. So once again, I, to talk about the, it's the way that it changes yeah. things in a positive way. Yeah. I was talking with somebody this week. Um, who leads a ministry in this community, and part of their ministry, um, there's a lot of folks who come and you know can't for whatever reason sit through 
uh, a service, especially when I'm preaching. Um, and it's just hard, right? It's hard to sit for 30 or 35 minutes. And so, uh, you know, they'll, they'll have to, they have to get up and use the restroom or get up and, you know, grab a smoke or, or get up and whatever, right? For whatever reason. Um, and for some people, that's a real, that, that's a real bother. Um, and because it, it feels like, well, you know, can't, can't we just sit still? Um, say, say something about that and your perspective on that, because I know you have one. Uh, say something about that. Our notion of our, 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 where we have come in worship is so brittle that it's just, you know, we want everybody to be absolutely quiet and everything's got to be absolutely the music I like. And you got to say, talk about the things that I want you to talk about. And if you get anywhere out of that just a little bit, then, you know, my total worship experience is destroyed because it's not what I wanted. And there's a degree to which, once again, we have been trained to be that way. Why is the church that way? It's because our leadership has trained us to be that way, right? But how much better? I mean, and, and I've had, I've gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with, with leaders in, the, in disability ministry about this. You know, how much better if there were people who were a little noisy in the congregation and we just learned to get used to that? I mean, I know there's lots of, there's, there's cultural churches that are, um, there's churches with different cultural groups that are very noisy during worship, and, the, and, the, and God is honored, and the word is preached, and all that kind of stuff. So for us to put these social skill demands on people that are unattainable sometimes even for us, and to say that is the entrance card for worship is, is nonsense. It's, one of my favorite passages is the, is the Mark Mark 7 passage where Jesus is talking to the scribes and Pharisees and he's talking about this thing called Corban and you don't have to get off into Corban but in verse 8 of that, of that passage he says you have exchanged the commands of God for the traditions of men and then later on in verse 13 he says and I love this he says Jesus once again says you have exchanged the commands of God for the traditions of men and you do a lot of things like that, Jesus says. So what is the command of God? The command of God is that I need to love my neighbor and facilitate you know, access to the Lord for my neighbor. What are the traditions of men? You better shut up and sit quietly during the worship service or we won't have you here. Hmm. And so what do we do? A person is vocal, a person is whatever, cannot meet the social skill demands that we have for this particular setting. So we ignore the commands of God, which are to love your neighbor and substitute them with traditions of men, which is this, the the way that we have designed our worship services such that they, and when you step back and think about it, they really are somewhat prohibitive in the social skill demands that they make and the way that we've been taught relative to those social skill demands so that a baby cries and it's even something like that. It's like, get the baby out of here. Rather than saying, what if we opened it up some more? Um, I mean, clearly the worship service would become a bit more unpredictable because of the kinds of things that would happen in the audience. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, a question that I always ask is that if you, if you have an entirely silent worship service, is that indicative of a, a church that is serving the Lord? Or is a noisy worship service with people who aren't able to be quiet more of an indication of a worship service that is honoring to the Lord? Because if, you're, if your worship service is totally quiet, that indicates that there are people who could not be there because they can't meet your social skill demands. But if your service is noisy and a little up for grabs a little bit, that indicates that you as a church are saying, um, we're, we're, we're more interested in having these people here even though it may make people uncomfortable because of the way they've been trained that a worship service should be. Yeah, I mean, 
you're making a choice because there are people who will say, no, this tradition for us is more important than creating space for our neighbor, right? And they'll choose the tradition somewhere instead of saying, instead of recognizing, you know, that this person can't change this particular thing overnight. Um, I, ho I hope it's okay for me to share this story, but uh, I was talking with this person and they said, um, for months, they were bringing a friend who couldn't sit through worship service. And uh, what they did is, is they got, and they, they were going around their group and asking, how can we pray for you? And this person said, um, pray that I can sit through a worship service. This was a prayer request for, for week after week after week after week. So they decided what they would do is they would all sit around this person during the worship service, and the entire time they would pray that they could sit through it. And it was the one time that they did. But part of me was thinking they should have been praying for everybody else, you know? Pray that everybody else is okay with a little movement, right? It lightens up a little bit, exactly. Like, it's not the end of the world if somebody leaves one or two or five times, you know? Um, I'm going to be okay if I'm preaching and they're walking around. I actually like it because there's a little movement in the room, you know? It loosens me up a little bit. Uh, but we have such like priority on... You know, in Dutch, there's a word, I don't know why I just pulled this word out, but um, <laughs> netjes, it's netjes, which is like neat. You know, everything's got to be like neat. And where did that come from? Where did that come from that church is supposed to be neat? Oh, yeah. Well, it, it absolutely would not be neat. <laughs> I mean, there's, the neatness um, implies almost a malaise yeah. within the church. Yeah. Um, but, but, Another story about this whole notion is, um, so every so often my, my church very foolishly allows me to preach, mm. and I've done it uh, twice in 20 years, so I'm, I'm good once every 10 years, you know, <laughs> yes. so I've been there 25 years, so my next time should be coming up here pretty <laughs> next soon. Next four or five years, you're yeah, working you know, on it. That's right, so it gives me that long say something worth saying, but um, so the thing is, was because I was preaching, the, our, our light and power class didn't meet because folks would just come to the worship service and whatever because I usually teach our light and power class. And this is poignant in a whole lot of different ways. So this woman who has a son with relatively severe autism, big guy, uh, comes to our light and power class and um, we're not there. And so she comes to the, to the main service and worship service and there's people there who saw her and know her and said, oh, we're not having uh, our light and power class today. We're meeting in the, in the sanctuary for the worship service. First lesson was, she said, are we allowed in the worship service? Wow. Right? Oh. So I'm a, I'm a mother of a kid with autism. I'm not allowed in the worship service is the wow. first thing. Second thing was that the person said, uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Come on in. Come on in. Jeff's talking today and whatever. And so, you know, the... You know, do the singing and everything like that, and this guy's being a little noisy in the singing, but it kind of drowned with the singing, and then it's time for me to come up, and I'm talking, and he starts making a noise, which, you know, like a, a moaning kind of noise, uh, loud during the worship service, um, and uh, I think people are probably a little cooler, because it was Disability Ministry Sunday, so they're thinking, well, I don't know about this, but I guess it's okay, but, you know, when, when this fellow started moaning, I mean, I immediately stopped and said, do you hear that noise? That's a noise we don't hear in church. You know what that is? That's what inclusion sounds like. Mm. That's what inclusion sounds like, mm. right? And I'm totally cool with that. That, don't that doesn't bother me at all. So if you hear him making that noise and it bothers you, I'm sorry it bothers you, but it doesn't bother me at all. We're just going to continue on as if this is the way it is every week. Mm. 
And, and so there's, there's a degree to which on the one hand, um, on the one hand, we don't want to just suddenly drop a bunch of people who are moan, making moaning noises in the worship service with autism and kind of say, suck it up and get over it. Yeah. But on the other hand, the leadership could potentially help to prepare the environment a little bit and say, listen, you know, we're going to start, there's a family coming that has a child with autism. The child might be a little noisy during the service. We're okay with that. I want you to be prepared for that. Don't have a, a cow over that. And now you kind of set it up and make it a little easier for people to do the right thing because they've been prepared. Um, so once again, I keep coming back to this, and I, I know it sounds very critical, but so many of the problems should be dropped squarely at the feet of the leadership because more than anything, the leadership have been the impediment to the inclusion of people with disabilities, to the development of disability ministry, and the facilitation of the changes which would open things up and potentially teach us to love our neighbor better. Um, you, I'm, I'm totally compelled by this, by the way, and one of the things I, I love about this church is there is a history, and there are quite a few families um, who uh, are, are walking through this with teenagers um, or maybe even some students or, or uh, young adults. 20, um, just to interrupt you real quickly, yeah. 20, the U.S. statistics say that nearly 20% of the population has some form of disability. So that's, those are people with the actual disability. Now think about the numbers of people who are impacted by the family member or friend or whomever who has a disability. It's a huge number. Mm. So the fact that we have missed that, I mean, you, you, wanna, you wanna reach out in missions, reach out to this group, and you're gonna hit, you may hit 50% of the population if you showed a heart for these types of individuals. Yeah, incredible. No, no. Um, you actually were, uh, so a few years back, Redlands Christian School, the river has a really, um, you know, long-standing uh, Christian education is incredibly important to this community. And you were instrumental in, in a part of the whole dialogue that happened there. Um, say something about the, the types of Christian schools that have, or maybe even the types of schools that have existed for people with disabilities, uh, kind of the difference between uh, you know, segregated school and, and you know, integrated school and, uh, you know, what the conversation was like um, at Redlands Christian. They've obviously chosen an uh, integrated model. And I think because of that, even at the, the river here, we have a number of students um, who are a part of that special education program at Redlands Christian and a part of, of, of the river. So it's really, you know, had an impact, and I want you to know that, on this community, on this church, as well as the Redlands Christian School, but say something about the difference between kind of segregation, um, you know, education and integrated education. Well, first of all, I don't know if Ray Leinstra was a member of this church. He was the administrator, but God bless Ray Leinstra. He what mm. a incredible man he was, mm. and there would never have been special education. Um, at Redlands Christian, if, if it not been for his incredible heart and his forward thinking, um, you got to recognize I, this. Probably about eight or ten years ago, I don't think it's budged too much. Eight or ten years ago, I did research relative to special education in Christian schools, and a tenth of one percent of Christian schools in California had special ed. A tenth of one percent. So ninety-nine point nine percent did not. Wow. Right, and and. As I said at ACA when I got to talk one time, how dare us? Mm. We're, we're the face of Christ to the community, 
and will say, I'll take you, but I won't take you. Wow. It's horrible. But yeah, but I mean, praise God for Redlands Christian School and ACA and the way that they have to work. Um, Sarah Slayman had a huge amount to do with that, bringing that around. Uh, worked to bring special education into the, the uh, Christian school there because it's incredibly rare. Um, I have a little bit of involvement still. My wife, Kathy, and I have a little bit of involvement still with that, but kind of uh, are not as involved as much as we used to be. But just in relation to that, it's, it's wild that the public school system is ahead of the Christian church in terms of integrating people with disabilities. Mm. How, you know, just think about that a second. Let that think sink in a second. The secular uh, educational community is ahead of the followers of Jesus Christ in loving and integrating devalued people. Mm. How could that possibly be? But the notion of integration, I mean, it's improved over the years um, where you know now it's possible for children with a disability to have public school education, and and it's hit or miss. I mean, some districts and schools are better than others, um, but at least there's the potential. There's the potential there. I mean, when you when you go to a public school, you will see children with disabilities, right? I would ask you if I went to a, to the to any church in the community, would I see people with disabilities there? That's the starting point. And my answer to my own question is no. <laughs> One, you, you probably wouldn't see them, first of all, because they're not being concluded, included. But secondly, even if, they, even if churches do have ministries, they often have what are referred to as siloed ministries, where the individuals with disabilities all go into some room over here and they're, they're segregated off, and the people in the, in, the, in the congregation never even see them. They mm. might as well not even be there. Uh, because they're never integrated. Yeah. Whereas a Christian church should be a place where, um, I think this is the heart of God. The Christian church should be a place where if I walked in, I'd see people with disabilities, just whatever they were doing. You know, they were going <laughs> to the worship service or they're going to the Sunday school class or whatever they were doing. I would just see them there yeah. in the same way that it would be at the public school. And, and as something as dumb as that, just seeing an individual with disability, that leads to relationships. Right, because right? Right. now I see you. Now there's the potential, at least, that I can come up and say, "Hey, how you doing? I'm Jeff," or whatever, and 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 whatever happens next would happen. Right. But if the people aren't even seen, there's no hope for integration. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. Uh, you uh, you highlight something that um, you know I think we've seen at the, at the river in the last few years is more and more we have friendships with um, you know people who live outside. And um, it's not just we drive by and recognize, but now that's, that's a friend of mine, you know, um, who, uh, and, and as you develop that relationship, you know, you develop that friendship, you're changed by that person's story. And you get close enough to sort of hear their story. And, um, yeah, I think that that's an, an amazing point. Is, so how do we do that as, how do churches do that? How do they go about helping people be seen? What are some like practical steps? I mean, some of it's kind of obvious. I mean, I know you're just trying to get me to answer that. And I mean, just inviting people. I mean, um, kind of making it's it. It's obvious to you, but I don't think it's obvious to all of us. Well, I mean, just inviting people, making it known that um, that you would like to have people, you know, with uh, disabilities uh, at the, uh, you know, at the church in a variety of capacities. I mean, 
when we first started our ministry, we sent out flyers to the human service different groups that are around the community. We sent out flyers to the public schools. We had flyers in the you know the um, Christian bookstores, or we um, contacted the local newspaper and said, "Hey, we're starting this thing. Would you do a little ad or something about the fact that this is starting up?" and and um, when we had our first meeting, I think we had eight people, which was lovely. Um, but then over time, the word gets out, and it grows and grows and grows. And, and you can't minimize the fact that, I mean, once again, this breaks your heart. It minimized the fact that when a community finds out that there's a church that is interested in individuals with disabilities, there are people who have stayed home because there was no place for them, or they've been told that they're not wanted, who will come out of the woodwork and... Mm. And, and begin to kind of to join because there hadn't been a place for them before. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, I remember in Christian Ed, they, uh, they used to say, if you want people to come, speak to the group that you want to come and people will find out that you're speaking to them and they'll start to come. There's a degree to which that's the case. Start talking about God's heart for individuals who are devalued or have disabilities and, you know, start talking about how, you know, uh, we need to have plans for, for children with various disabilities to be in the Sunday school class, classes integrated with their age group or start talking about from the pulpit, you know, that, you know, we would love to have a ministry that would include adults um, in a variety of different ways and and um, and then go out and find out where those people are, too. I mean, there's there are group homes in this community for adults with various disabilities. There is... Uh, kind of lower income apartments in this community where adults with disabilities live. Why would they live there? Because they can't afford the nicer places. Uh, so they live in those kinds of low income apartments. You can find those kinds of things. Um, but there was something though that you said earlier too that I, I just wanted to kind of pick up on and that is that because we're not involved in the lives of these people, we think everything's good. You know, we think government benefits are good and we think the government gives them enough and the human service agencies are are what they need to be and whatever. Um, and then the thing you do is that you go in and you find in these people's lives and you find out that uh, that, that is not the case, that they are living in poverty and that um, they are not being integrated from the state in uh, people who are supposed to be facilitating those kinds of things. And all these things that you kind of live in this, this pipe dream notion of who these people are, it's not who they are at all. I'm reminded of the um, the Christmas Carol, Scrooge, the Christmas Carol, right? And Scrooge, you know, the famous line, you know, they come and want money for Scrooge, and he goes, aren't there any poor houses? You know, what about, what about the poor law? Isn't that an effect? And uh, why don't they just go there and, be, and receive services, which is what the church has done to a certain extent. And then the people who are, who are trying to get money say, um, many would rather die than go there, right? Human services, back in the late 1800s, many would die than rather, rather than go there. Um, and it's the same today. And so Scrooge says, um, well, if they'd rather die, let them die and decrease the surplus per population. And he says, besides, I don't know that, meaning I don't know that they would rather die than go to those places. And the guys who are from the charitable organization say, but you might know it, right? If you got in the lives of these people, you'd find out how it kind of sucks to be dependent upon these agencies um, I mean, all I got to do is say to you, I mean, how, how much fun do you enjoy uh, when you have to go to the DMV? You go down to DMV and say, hey, I get to go to DMV today, baby. <laughs> the DMV, you know, people don't like to go to the DMV because of the way they're treated. 
Human services are the DMV to a whole lot of these other people. And when you get into their lives, you find out that's the case. And then you're not so enamored with the human services that people receive, um, thinking that that's sufficient. Um, but rather, the church could come alongside and provide a whole bunch of other kinds of stuff that are probably the most important things on some level outside of a basic income and stuff like that. Things like social relationships and that, which is, you know, and friendships, which is the most important thing in yeah. society. Yeah. I want to come back to something um, that I had written in my notes here. Um, there's, uh, you know, a, a question I think that people have, um, and flipping it, I had a friend that, that wrote a book. He was um, my a professor at uh, the college that I went to, and he wrote a book called The Gift of the Stranger, and I think you need to talk to him, and you need to write the book, uh, The Gift of Disability. Uh, I think that would be fascinating because you, you share the same heart. And when I took his course, I left feeling like, you know, the stranger, the alien, the foreigner in our land is a gift to us, meant to teach us something about our own culture and ourselves, but, um, you know, bigger than that, about, about God's really, really huge heart. Um, so the question is, and I, I think we talked about this a little bit earlier, but is disability the result of sin in the world? Is it a, is it a result of a brokenness in the world? And um, how should people, what should, and you touched on this earlier uh, already, but how should people see disability and somebody with disability? What's the right approach? I mean, that's a great question, and I'm not a theologian, and, and if you want to talk about is disability the result of the fall, I mean, I'm not going to speak to that. You can, I'll let you theologians flesh that out, hammer that out. But the question is, is my child's disability the result of my personal sin is a, is a question to ask. Well, the first thing I, I could say is that could I do something that would cause someone to have a disability? I mean, sure. I mean, I could, I could act in violence towards you, uh, probably likelihood if we got in a fight, I'd lose. But if I, I could try to act in violence with, towards you, and maybe as the result of that, you would receive some kind of an injury, um, and then, uh, you know, so I, I would have caused a disability in you, or I, people you hear about shaken child syndrome, where parents get angry and they shake a child, mm -hmm. and as a result of that, a disability occurs. So can I do things of a sinful nature that can cause someone to have a disability? Absolutely. Right. But is my personal sin, the fact that I'm a liar, or the fact that I'm stealing money from somebody or doing whatever I'm doing. Does my personal sin cause uh, the disability in my child? And I think the answer clearly from Scripture is no, it's not at all. Right. Not even a little bit. Um, we can think, first of all, about the John 9 passage where Jesus is walking along with the road with his disciples and they see the man born blind and, and disciples just kind of making a conversation, kind of say, who sinned, him or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus' response was, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened that the works of God might be seen in his life. And it's interesting because if you go to the end of that John 9 passage, um, when the guy is healed by Jesus, the scribes and Pharisees say, you were born in sin and you're going to lecture us. So the notion that they even had was the reason he was born blind was because of his sin or his parents' sin. Right. But let's just take this a little further. Let's assume, although I, I'm not saying this, but let's assume for the sake of argument that sin is the cause of disability. Right. Okay, let's say that sin is the cause of disability. Yeah. Well, the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says no one is righteous, not even one. So if sin was the cause of disability, all our children should be disabled. Mm -hmm. 
right? If sin was a cause of disability, all our children would be disabled. So the fact that my children are not disabled tells me sin's not the cause of disability, trust me. If sin were the cause of disability, my kids would be disabled. So that's the first thing we need to take. Sin is not the cause of disability. But another aspect of this too is that there's sufficient scriptures that say that God potentially actually orchestrates disability, which would tell us that, that sin is not the cause of disability. The one that you immediately think of is the Exodus passage when you know, God's talking to Moses by the bush and, and um, you know, Moses is whining that he can't go because he's got a speech impediment to talk to Pharaoh, which is another whole interesting thing to think about. Why would God send a person with a speech impediment to talk to Pharaoh? But uh, ultimately, you know, uh, Moses says, I don't speak well. And God's response is, who made your mouth? Basically, he says, who made the mouth of man? Who makes people deaf or dumb or blind, using the, the vernacular of the time? Is it not I, the Lord? Right? So once again, there's, a, there's, a, there's an aspect of this, putting it together with the parts of the body that seem indispensable, or seem weaker or indispensable, um, people being knit together in their mother's womb, you know, all this other kind of stuff um, kind of indicates that there could potentially be a purpose that God has in allowing or creating people, uh, both are, are aspects of his sovereignty to allow something to occur or to directly cause it to occur that implies purpose mm. in, in what he's doing, sovereignty in what he's doing, um, and not necessarily just some notion that I sin and therefore my child is disabled. Incredible. Um, my heart gets uh, just really, really full in these conversations. Um, and I feel like stretched in really, really uh, good ways. I'm excited because there's uh, a handful of people, um, you know, the, the challenge to how do we help people or how do we as a church see people with disabilities and then help, like I'm thinking too as a, as a you know, pastor here, how do I help people in our congregation see people with disability and, and get to know and have relationship and go beyond maybe um, just turning around and hearing a noise and maybe being a little bit annoyed. Um, and so I, that challenge is one that's really sticking with me, and I want to thank you for um, giving that to me. Any other challenges, things you can kind of like put on me um, before you, you dip it on? And then I'm going to let Bill and Terry and David and Harv and Jean, if they have any questions, then, then they can ask you as well. But um, any other challenges you got for me before? The starting point, the starting point for any church to, with disability ministry is for the leadership to say, we want people with disabilities here. We want people with disabilities here. That's the starting point. Is in, until that happens, then you know the person shows up with whatever their issue is and they make a noise or something and all you need is just a little rolling of the eyes of the pastor and that person's dead now. They're kind of socially dead. But if the pastor stands up and boldly says, we want people with disabilities here, now the rest of it is just logistics. Right? And logistics aren't easy. I mean, clearly, you're a pastor, you know that. Um, logistics aren't easy, but now it's a question of logistics. We want people with autism here. Okay, what do we need to do? How do we need to change to have people with autism here? I'm looking at your sanctuary here. We want people with wheelchairs here. Okay, what does that imply in terms of programmatically or, or structurally such that we need to have wheel places for people with wheelchairs to sit with whoever they want to sit with, right? So. That, it becomes logistics, but logistics does not imply it's easy. So I'd say to you, the starting point for any ministry is to say, we want people with disabilities here. 
The second thing, and then we'll open it up for questions or whatever. The second thing is that um, there's a passage, and I've lost the, the, the place of it now, but it talks about godly sorrow. Another Paul writing talks about godly sorrow. The other starting point of disability ministry is repentance. My gosh, repentance, right? We need to go. It's like the Luke 14 passage of trying to compel people to come to the banquet. We need to go to people with disabilities and say, would you forgive us for the way that we have been towards you, right? You know, we think we're going to have new ministry. Everybody's going to show up. It's going to be all beautiful. No, they don't trust us. And, and wisely, they don't trust us. So a starting point is repentance, to go to people and say, please forgive us. One story on that real quick, and then, then I'll stop. But I was, I was speaking at a conference in um, Melbourne, Australia one time, talking about this very issue. And I said, you know, the starting point of disability ministry is repentance. We need to go to families with disabilities and ask for forgiveness. Right? And so I, there were probably 100 people in the audience. And I said, you know, I have no right to do this to you. But let me just say, if, if, if the church has um, harmed you, family member or person with disability, I ask for your forgiveness. Would you please forgive us? Because we are not representing the heart of Jesus Christ. Almost immediately, this woman just started blubbering, crying. And everybody's like, what's the matter? She goes, I have been waiting for this. I have been waiting for this repentance from the church my whole life. Says, and finally I heard it. You know? So it's not just a glib little thing, I ask for forgiveness. No. These are people who we have hurt. We have been complicit in hurting them. And just to kind of say, we've got a ministry show up and everything's going to be fine. No. No. They, they need, we need to ask for forgiveness because they don't trust us. Wisely. Thank you. I, I uh, read that story on your blog um, and uh, was felt, felt that same sense of I need to do that. I need to say that. I need to even speak that to some people particularly. Hey, I haven't um, you know, made a way for you. Uh, I haven't made it easy for you or, or at least you know, help make a path uh, of relationship possible. Um, I haven't been thoughtful. And um, you know, the, the sin of uh, even uh, omission things that I, I haven't done that I ought to have um, is just really, really present. And uh, so I, I felt that. By the way, your blog, Disabled Christianity, is a play on, on words, right? I mean, you're, you're talking about how Christianity is, is missing um, it, and we're, we're hobbling and limping along. Um, what, would, what would the picture of, of a Christianity that was, was fuller um, what's your dream for the church um, moving moving forward? It's interesting that you ask that because I'm I'm trying to get my mind around that. You know, um, I'll, I'll be places or see things, and I and I'll say, I think that's what the God uh, the heart of God looks like relative to this. But what I'm trying to get my mind around, and I'm actually about to do some work to try to figure this out, is to try to get a vision for what God's heart is for the church relative to ministry to people with disabilities. Um, I mean, the one thing I told you already, what I think is 
obvious is that people with disabilities would be seen. I mean, if a church was responding to the heart of God relative to a variety of devalued people, but individuals with disabilities in particular, they would be seen. But I gotta tell you, <clears throat> um, I think, I think if, if the more I understand the heart of God on this, I think that you would hardly recognize the church from where it is currently to where it potentially might be, right? And, and by the church, I'm not talking about the building. The building might change, but I'm talking about the individuals in the church, right? Where once again, imagine if, imagine if I had to love people who were difficult to love. Imagine if the, the, the leadership had the wisdom and the, and the um, guts challenged their congregation to love people who are difficult to love. I mean, we would, we would be in a totally different place. I don't know what it would look like in terms of the regular worship service or something like that or the regular programs of the church or whatever, but I think it'd be radically different if we actually did love our neighbor, right? but we don't want to do that, and we're not challenged to do that. And it's almost as if, you know, those in leadership have kind of watered down the message that I need to love my neighbor um, to the degree that I should. But I just think it would be, it would be almost hard to envision the difference. And part of the reason why, one of, there's a, there's a philosopher who's written some interesting stuff about power that I read sometimes named Foucault, and Foucault has, has, says, when, when there is resistance, power is being exerted. Someone's trying to exert power if there is resistance. And um, there's an article I wrote that's called The Power of Those Who Seem Weaker. And I think there's a degree to which if those who seem weaker, individuals with disabilities, et cetera, were in this situation, in this setting, the power that they would express, not by doing anything, just by being, the power that they would express would just, it would, it would radically change everything. And there's a degree to which I think some of the resistance and the exclusion is maybe we have an inkling of how that power would be expressed and how uh, it would cause us to change when we necessarily don't want to change. I, I told you this, but I'll just, I'll say it again, um, just maybe because your listeners haven't heard it, but. It's the idea of the Good Samaritan, right? I mean, you think of the story of the Good Samaritan. First of all, some guy trying to justify himself to Jesus says, who's my neighbor? Who does Jesus describe as his neighbor? We miss the fact that Jesus describes a man with a severe physical disability, at least temporarily. And I had a dear friend who was beaten and left for dead, and he had a traumatic brain injury and lived the rest of his life in a wheelchair. So who is my neighbor? First of all, Jesus describes someone potentially has a severe physical disability, and we miss that. When was the last time I heard that in a sermon? But the other thing that we notice about this guy, he doesn't do anything. This is something that God's really showing me a lot in some writing I'm doing now. This guy doesn't do anything. He's laying there. He's left for dead. The guys think they cut, killed him. He's laying there left for dead, right? His mere presence reveals the character of everybody around him. Think about that, right? So you got the scribe, comes by, or a Pharisee, whatever it was, and he sees him, and this guy is talking a good game in church or doing whatever he's doing, and when push comes to shove where he has to love somebody who's difficult to love and may put him at risk in a variety of ways, I'm tiptoeing around that guy, right? And the next guy, the same kind of thing. His mere presence reveals the character of the people around him. 
And then the Good Samaritan comes along and his mere presence reveals how incredible this person is in response to that, right? So there's an aspect of that too. Imagine, there, why do I not want people who have severe needs uh, in our congregation? Because they may reveal who I am and, and the degree to which I love my neighbor or don't love my neighbor. But imagine if there was a church who were filled with people who were truly like the Good Samaritan, who were more interested in loving their neighbor and doing what was necessary for their neighbor on some level to bring them to the Lord um, rather than their own personal comfort. So, okay, I gotta ask this. I know you guys have maybe have a question or two, but that, that was, boom, awesome, heart exploding again. Uh, love your take. You gotta come here and preach that sermon, by the way, on who is my neighbor. Um, so I'm gonna talk to Scott, see if we can get you here sometime preaching that. You had a student on your blog who said that part of the difficulty for them in loving their neighbor is there's this level of awkwardness. And I loved your spin on it. Say, say, I don't want to steal your punchline, but. No, it's just, it's just that, you know, if you're a person with a disability and I'm a person without a disability, if we kind of come together to kind of just have a friendship, there's no awkwardness there unless I bring it, right? So if there's awkwardness, I bring awkwardness to the situation. The person with the disability is not feeling awkward. Mm. I bring it to the situation. So when people say, oh, I feel uncomfortable, it's gonna be awkward, whatever like that, it's like, yeah, you're the problem. Mm. The individual with disability is not the problem, you're the one, they're thinking everything's fine, potentially. Right. Um, you're the one who's bringing the uh, awkwardness to the situation with the person who's with Down syndrome who thinks the Down syndrome is my foot hurts. Yeah. You know, they're not feeling <laughs> awkward about the situation. I love that, I love that. Yeah, so the, the impetus is on, um, you know, what we would say the strong, right, person to adjust, to change. The person, I, I hadn't thought about it like this before, but the person who can change is the one that ought to for the sake of the other. Yeah, that's great. That's really awesome. So hey, um, any questions or comments? Okay, I just had a simple question about um, what does, I know it's, the, it's very important to build relationships in person, but do you find that there's even a really big opportunity online for those with, um, like I know, there are a couple people in church here who now are kind of shut-ins. They can't. They have a hard time leaving their home. So I like. I do see them online. They are online. Do you see a very large potential there to um, extend ministry um, in that way? I mean, my immediate reaction is that people need to be touched, right? I mean, people need to be touched and. If you've lived your life socially isolated and segregated, um, I mean, you may enjoy some of the benefits of, um, you know, interactions or relationships or something like that um, online. Um, but I mean, for you and I, right, our online relationships are just some kind of supplemental, something we do for fun, you know, it's just a little extra thing, you know, or keeping in track with, keeping in touch with people that we know. If that's all you have, then that's, I mean, that's horrible. And so there's a part of me that would say, 
um, if you want to supplement people who already have a wealth of relationships where they are being touched physically, um, then I'd say fine, but never build a ministry to individuals with disabilities around a social network because, I mean, a social network online, because, I mean, do you see how, see, we do this kind of stuff, and I'm not talking about you, we do this kind of stuff, you know, Maybe if I have an if I'm part of an online network, then I don't have to actually be with them. You know, I don't have to smell uh, the urine. You know, if they've wet themselves, or I don't have to deal with whatever their craziness might be because they're mentally ill or something like that. You know, and so it's kind of a way of excusing myself from the difference. So on the one hand, yeah, potentially, but. You know, people who are already socially isolated and segregated and, and whatnot, what they need is touch and, you know, and going to their house and taking them out. And there's a, the, 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 the same guy who um, that was mentioned about um, people whose lives are filled with people who are paid to be with them. Um, he also uh, talks about the fact that um, you know, people are uh, completely socially isolated and an aspect of their life is that um, they just live by themselves and all you need to do is have a physical disability and now you're suddenly entirely alone. Mm. And it's like, like a wound. Yeah. You know, no one will be with me physically. They'll only be with me virtually. And it's kind of like, I guess if that's all I have, I, I'll take it, but. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I, I read this, there's an author named Tony Kriz, and he said something, he was a missionary in like Albania, um, and had his whole kind of uh, worldview rocked when he was there, but he talked about um, touch, and because when he was there, it was a very like touchy culture. You know, the, the men would walk down the street holding hands, and he said the first time he opened his Bible um, with two of his roommates, one of them put his head on his shoulder and the other one in his lap. And he was just, you know, like, freaked what out. in the world? Yeah, freaked out. But, you know, he started pointing out in, in the scripture that Jesus's way of breaking social isolation is to touch, you know? He, the, and, or people touch him, right? The woman was bleeding. She, there's a touch. It's a physical thing that breaks, you know, a, a social barrier and ultimately a spiritual barrier in that person's life. So I, I just want to... Um, yeah, affirm that, the importance of that in, in people's lives and sort of breaking down the barrier of, of loneliness and isolation is the physical presence um, where 100% agree that um, the, the internet could be an awesome supplement, but exclusively probably not the, you know, the only thing, the only interaction you'd hope people would have. And, and so a person drools, hug the person who drools. You know, who cares if you get a little drool on your shirt? Watch your freaking shirt. I mean, a person, you know, they they do other things with your hands that they make. They put them in places in their body that make them make you feel uncomfortable. Shake hands with them, right? And then wash your hands later. I mean, you can always wash your hands. I mean, yeah, I had to today actually. This shirt. It's funny you said that. This shirt, I got spit on and pooped on by a six-month-old. So well done. Yeah. Right. Congratulations. There you go. I'm growing. As a disciple. <laughs> Any other questions or comments? David's got one. Uh, it reminds me, a lot of what you're saying, it reminds me of our talk last month. 
Uh, we've talked a lot about race, and the theme is kind of fear of the other. And I'm kind of thinking of one key difference here in that I think when we look at uh, issues with race and fear of the other, it's we're still kind of looking at other people as full humans. They just happen to look different, and that still kind of speaks to that lizard brain. But I wonder if sometimes when we're dealing with disabilities, it's it's almost a question of, well, are they fully here? And I think that, that kind of touches us differently. It's, it's scary. Um, I think that can be harder to, you know, to overcome than, than just a fear of the other, somebody who's you know, another, another race, another color. And I don't know what to do with that or what that adds here, but it just, it's, it's the same, but it definitely feels a little different. Well, I mean, well, one thing just to, just since you mentioned race and that is that the thing that's uh, that's particularly difficult with disability is people are discriminated against within their own group. You know, so I mean, you're you're potentially doubly discriminated, but you're discriminated against within your own group. Um, yeah, uh, why would people feel that an individual with a disability is less than human, or? Um, less than somebody else. Um, I can only say that they've been taught that, right? And so, uh, you know, what is the image of God? There's lots of dis there's lots of discussion about what the image of God is. You can read about all different things about the image of God, but all I know is you take the person with the most severe, profound, whatever disability, they are created in the image of God, right? So the image of God has got to be something other than what I think it is. Right. I like to joke that I look in the mirror and see myself and say, well, look, obviously the image of God is right there, baby. Look at it. It's all over me. I'm the image of God. Right. And then I look at my friend with a disability and I say, I wonder what the image of God is. The fact of the matter is, is they're both equally present. So if I'm discriminating in a kind of James 2 kind of way, if I'm discriminating to, on, on between people on the basis of something that I perceive uh, as a difference, I mean, as basic as the image of God, that's more a reflection of my ignorance than anything else. And once again, where would I learn that? Where would I, where, I mean, the average person's not run around thinking about the image of God. Uh, they're probably taught that somewhere. And so those in leadership have to very overtly say, listen, this is the reality. This is the truth of what the scripture says about disability. These are people created in the image of God. These are people who are indispensable. These are people, why, why might a person have a disability? Jesus was asked that. Why was this guy born blind? So that the works of God might be seen in his life, right? So there's purpose in all this other kind of stuff. The fact that we think otherwise, once again, is indicative of either the lack of thought, the lack of training, the lack of experience uh, that those in leadership over us have in this area. And so we are a reflection of what we have not been taught on some level. Now, obviously, we're uncomfortable, I mean, because we don't have those people in our lives, but that's another whole issue. I, I mean, I have, when I bring my friends in, like we were talking about, to, inter, to meet with my students um, in my classes, you know, I have students, college students, sharp kids. They might be, you know, anywhere from 20 to 30 or older, some people second career kind of stuff. These people tell me that they're scared to meet these people and talk to them. They're afraid to meet adults with intellectual disabilities and talk to them and that they've never met a person or had a conversation in, with, a, with a person with an intellectual disability. And I'm saying, 
How in the world could you grow up and live your life in a Christian church and have never had a conversation with a person with disability before? Once again, that's, that's damning of us on a whole variety of levels, not the least of which the leadership and where the leadership has taken us or directed us or not taught us, as I said. So. And that's where I think with what you've done, you know, uh, at RCS, what RCS has done, um, is just a really, really beautiful step because you've got a whole generation of students growing up alongside of each other and going, you know, no, this, this is my friend. This is not just, you know, a person with disability. This is God. Yep. This is just God. Yeah, anybody else? Question, comment? Yeah. Thank you, uh, and also I know Kathy, your wife started a new job in January, right? Yeah. Over at Rev. Yeah, very exciting. Teaching. Um, teaching. Um, she's. It's called a transition program. Eighteen to twenty-two year olds teaching um, eighteen twenty year olds with um, moderate to severe kinds of disabilities, and so it's lots of stuff helping to them to learn, take care of themselves, be integrated in the community, that kind of thing. Cool. So blessings on on yeah. her and you as well, uh, Jeff. I think you're. Um, it's your message is so important because it's it's helping us see more clearly and it's helping us understand um, a huge disability in um, in the church in Christianity. Um, and I know for me personally, uh, in the last month or whatever uh, since we first sat down, it has had a, a big impact on me already. And I want you to know um, that I'm really looking forward to what, what God is going to continue doing through you and in blessing not just educators, but also um, pastors and, and religious leaders and, and people who really need to hear um, your perspective and your voice in this message. Um, and I'm excited uh, to see what God is going to continue doing um, through Light and Power, the Light and Power Company. And, um, yeah, I, I can't wait to come visit as well. So thanks so much for being here. We appreciate it. Thank you for joining us again. And we've got another dialogue coming up in just a few weeks. On April 27th at 6.30 p.m., we'll be discussing stewardship and Christian responsibilities to the natural environment. Should be a great talk, and we'd love to have you be a part of it. A very special thank you to Terry Heemstra, who you're undoubtedly familiar with from previous episodes here, but she handles all of the web publication and makes sure that this actually gets from us to your ears. Also, again, take a look at Dr. McNair's blog, linked in the show notes, where he's got some amazing content and discussion of how we can better appreciate and serve and understand the joy and honor of all of the body of Christ. As always, if you enjoyed the show, you know the drill. Check us out on iTunes, subscribe, rate, and review. But most important, tell a friend and join us in person for the April Dialogue again on the 27th. Thanks again, and we'll see you soon enough with Dialogue 4.